Thank you for joining us. For your encouragement, we bring to you this biblical sermon from Dr. Charlie Dates, preached at the Progressive Baptist Church in Chicago. We hope that it leaves you refreshed and inspired. If you're ever in Chicago on a Sunday, we'd love to have you in worship with us. Join now. This message already in progress. Let's turn our attention now to the truth of God's word. Philippians chapter 1. We continue our series on This We Believe, looking today again at what we believe about Jesus. And uh, in a few, we will uh, be moving toward what we believe about the Holy Spirit. So tune in with me now and hear these words from Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, all the way through verse 11. Just one thing... As citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come to see you or am absent, I will hear about you, that you're standing firm in one spirit, in one account, contending together for the faith of the gospel of Jesus Christ, not being frightened in any way by your opponents. This is a sign of destruction for them, but for your salvation. And this is from God. For it has been granted to you on Christ's behalf, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Since you are engaged in the same struggle that you saw I had and now hear that I have. If then there is any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy... Make my joy complete by thinking the same way. The better translation says by being of the same mind, having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but with humility of mind, consider one another as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited or grasped. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he came as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason, God, what does that say, church? Highly, highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What a, what a fascinating treatise on the person of Jesus Christ. I, I want to tag this text this morning and our exchange. He stooped to triumph. I want to talk about he stooped to triumph. You may be seated at home here, wherever you may be watching this from. Let us pray now together. Our Father and our God, we do thank you and honor you for the privilege we have now to read your word, to hear it explained and proclaimed. Do now, I pray, in Jesus' name, the best and highest for us. Amen. Every profession has its experts. Today, although they missed the playoffs to no fault of his own, in my opinion, in the NBA is Steph Curry. My pick for the MVP. He has demonstrated unparalleled skill. But not only, of course, in the arena of sports, we know in the arena of politics, that there are experts pontificating, writing legislation, suggesting changes for us. And one now, President Biden, is asking for the 
largest budget to meet some of the greatest needs that we have seen. I'm, I'm especially fascinated by comedians, people who still stand up and are able to engage our minds with words. I think of yesteryear, Richard Pryor, who, better than any contemporary, had a kind of rare gift for comedy to mix social commentary and humor to create a kind of coexistence between the two, arguing for a kind of longer-lasting solution that when Richard Pryor spoke made us think. What can we say about Quincy Jones? Y'all know music, don't you? You didn't say nothing about sports or politics. Uh, Quincy Jones, that brilliant mind of a musician, of a producer, producer of some four generations associated with names from everybody between Ray Charles and Will Smith. He was an expert in the field. But who is the expert at what the church believes? I thought about this very question over and over again as I wrestled with the series that we're preaching through like many pastors I feel the weight and the burden of it as your kind of resident theologian who got some formal training on these matters to help us decipher the nuances, the bits and pieces of the Christian faith. You've heard the name Esau Macaulay. He's written a fantastic book called Reading While Black and has a few others on the horizon. Esau will soon be joining our team as a kind of resident theologian. He's a professor in the academy, a student of the New Testament, and, and can help think through questions of anthropology, of identity, and of theology. Because we look to, quote, experts, don't we, when we come to some of the tough questions of what we believe and what we know. Well, the role of the academy is important. But when you read the high, lofty, and majestic description of the person and work of Jesus Christ and the responsibility of the local church in Philippians chapter 1, it's apparent that this text is written to a church, not to a professor, not to a theologian in the academy, not to somebody writing a book. In, in other words, the Bible does not reserve theology for seminaries or for pastor conferences. The Bible puts theology in the church's hands. This is the church's theology. This is the church's faith. And everybody in the church ought to be or seek to be an expert in their knowing of Jesus Christ. That's what this text is pushing up against you and I. How well do you know Jesus? How can you articulate faith in him? You ought to seek to be an expert in knowing Jesus Christ because the loft of Jesus is our aim. The portrait of Christ is our model. The person of Christ is our goal. And here now, the passage that I read into your hearing speaks about our public witness of Jesus. This is what some scholars would call public theology, how we live out our faith in the public square, or even how we act in church. That's a fascinating discussion as we seek to resume in-person fellowship, how we live and get along or don't get along in the community of the redeemed. And all of that is ground in what we know about who Jesus is. And so when we come to Philippians chapter 1 and Philippians chapter 2, these are words that we need to hear again and again, and we need to rehearse over and over again, because what we know about Jesus affects how we live in public. It also determines how we treat one another in person, and it colors what we expect about the future. And so if I were to winnow down this mountain of a text into the smallest collection of words that I could. I would simply urge upon you that this text is tailored to encourage you, not just me, but you too, to be like Christ. 
That didn't move you. <laughs> Maybe that's one of the perils of preaching to the church today. So we struggle with what exactly that means. I know it's hard to believe, looking at me today, that I used to be somebody whose swag did not drip off of him as he walked. And I know that's hard. You look at me today and you go, well, Pastor, we just know you had it together a long time ago. Well, truth be told, I didn't. I've told the church before of some of my embarrassing wardrobe decisions. I was a 17-year-old freshman at the University of Illinois trying to impress uh, the woman who is now my wife. And, well, my suit game just wasn't up to par. I did the best I could, you know, with the resources I had. I discovered a store. It's no longer in business. It's called Backrack and went to, to the mall, to Backrack, and I didn't really know what to buy, what colors to put with what. And so I would simply go to Backrack, and they would ask me what I wanted, and I would pull out the magazine. <laughs> and I'd say, give me, give me this. I didn't have to worry about the color of the jacket, the the twill of the shirt or the color of the tie, all of, all of those came together to fit me perfectly. There was a model laid out for me to look my best and to become who I am today. Well, when you and I pick up the Bible and we read about the person and work of Jesus Christ, our response is to look to heaven and to say, give me this. I want to wear this compassion. I want to dress in this joy. I, I want to have this attitude shape my own. I wonder, am I preaching to anybody here today? At home, listening, watching this on TV? This, this is the motivation for our Christian walk. It is that we are not satisfied to be the way that we are. We're, we don't want to just be left to who we are, but we want to be like Christ. And I bring that up because I think the, the risk in Philippians 1 and 2 is that the church runs the risk of forgetting the central person who makes us a church. What, what's at stake, friends, is not the truth. The truth is going to last. It will remain. But what's at stake is our memory. My concern even in an era of American history where church membership and attendance is dwindling and collapsing, is that you and I might relax on the fundamentals. That we might come to a pass where we don't think Jesus is everything. We, we might forget what makes him everything. And, and with all of the assault from the outside of the church and all of the threats from within the church, how will we hold on to our moorings? This is what Paul writes to the church at Philippi many years ago. It's a beautiful picture, a scene. If you'll go with me, I just want to walk us through a few movements here to, to reorient us to who grounds us while we face pressure by a world that doesn't believe what we believe. Who motivates us? To love one another in the way that we ought to be loved, even when we are not loved in return the way we ought to be loved. And then hopefully to shout one good time as we look at who Jesus is. Notice with me, this is, is part of what church membership requires. This is part of what makes up the church. It's, a, it's an outward witness. Verse 27 says, only conduct yourselves. The Christian standard Bible says this one thing, the way that this text is written in the original language. This is if Paul is now winnowing down his argument. He's just introduced his idea, says, I'm coming to see you. But this thing is most important. I want you to catch me. Live your life in a manner worth as much as the gospel of Jesus Christ. Conduct yourself. Watch your character and live in a way that is worth as much 
as the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, this ain't going to do nothing for you if the gospel ain't worth nothing to you. This, friends, the language of behavior, I'm leery at times to bring up from the pulpit because I'm not advocating a kind of empty piety or moralism to tell you uh, what kind of makeup you ought to wear or not wear, how long your shorts ought to be, or, or whether or not you should have tattoos or earrings. That, that ain't got nothing to do with, with, with this text. This is not where we're going. But what Paul is arguing is, is that there is a crown placed above your head in which you are called to grow into. Live your life in a manner worth as much as the gospel of Jesus Christ. Very kind members of our church some years ago gave uh, to us some shoes uh, for, I think it was for Claire. And when we got them home, we got them out of the box. They were too big. And so in my haste, I was either going to give them back, give them to somebody, or, or just do them away. And Kirstie said, no, 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 don't, don't do that. Just hold on to them. She'll grow. And when she grows, they will fit her perfectly. I held on to that moment until I could preach it. And I came this morning to preach it to you. God has sent you something, a picture, an image, a life, but you don't fit it yet. And, and the, the, the answer is not for you to throw it away. It is not for you to discard it as if it is possible. No, friends, what, what God is teaching us is that every difficult day, every trying conversation, every breakup and letdown, every heartache and pain, every failure and triumph grows you into the person and work of Jesus Christ. God is not wasting time or trouble. But the question this text asks is, how much is the gospel of Jesus Christ worth to you? What price can you put on mercy? What cost can you pay for grace? What shall you render for all of the marvelous blessings that you have received? And the answer is, my life. Because if God cannot have all of us, he won't take part of us. And what Paul is writing about here is our outward witness to the world around us. I think I ought to preach this the way that I feel it. I, I, I still believe when I read scripture that there ought to be something different about how you and I live versus the way the rest of the world lives. That those of us who have called the name of Jesus Christ and claim it are not under pressure to perform, but we have been made into somebody. Oh, friends, this is a word about where we are, Morgan, but it's also a word about where we're going. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the, the word. Actually, it's, it's one word, but it comes to us as many words. Paul is saying here uh, that you and I have dual citizenship. The, the word that we get in this text uh, bequeaths to us the word polis or like Metropolitan or Annapolis. It's, it's an orderly system. It's a made-up place. And what, what Paul is saying is, is that you and I, help me, Holy Ghost, you and I are not only citizens of Chicago, we are not only citizens of the United States, but we are citizens of a city called heaven. And the way that we live, is not merely to honor the rules of the government under which we live on earth. No, but we got a higher government to which we respond. We, we have a, a wonderful, more lofty a standard to which we live. And one day there will be awards given. It won't simply be a Congressional Medal of Freedom. It won't be the Citizen Award that Raina Nealon won this year. Sister from Minnesota who exceeded the standards of citizenship. She actually lost her life jumping into a building to rescue some young people from a building that was caught on fire. And so the, the state, the nation recognized her. It, it's not merely that, but, but it's that one day God's gonna look at you and say, how did you treat the homeless? What single mother did you love on? How was your attitude and your words to shaping the conversation and the influence of the world around you. 
How do you even know, you ask me, Pastor Charlie, how do I know that I'm actually functioning as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven? Here's how the text says. It says, striving together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but also salvation for you. And that too from God. Here it is. Watch it now. Dangerous words. For to you it has been granted or gifted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Experiencing the same conflict you see and you hear in me. Here is the indication that you got true citizenship in heaven. It is that you are able to stand firm. Robert Dalek wrote a wonderful biography on President Kennedy I read a number of years ago. Kennedy did his own piece called Profiles in Courage. And he tells the story of a time in Kennedy's life where while serving in the armed forces, his naval fleet came under attack. They had to hop into smaller boats to get to safe ground, but his comrades were injured and Kennedy went with an ailing back in a small speedboat, one by one, to rescue his uh, comrades. He swam even and put them on his back and, and brought them back. And in other words, it's, it's the picture of when the battle raged the toughest. Kennedy, whether by exaggeration or by truth, stood firm until the battle was over. Come with me now from the 1950s to the 2020s. When the battle against your faith rages in the public square, when people tell you that Jesus was not what you know him to be, when they argue for ethics and ethos that are contrary to who we are and what we believe, do you give in? Do you simply go along to get along? Or do you stand firm? And friends, I'm here today to tell you that the gospel makes of us people who stand firm. That just in the same way that Kennedy stuck with his mission, you and I are to stick with the gospel. And so maybe I'm preaching to myself, but I came today to issue this word. I'm sticking with Jesus. I'm sticking with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Doesn't matter how narrow-minded people call me or it doesn't matter how liberal people call me. I'm sticking with the one who came from heaven down to earth to show us the way. I'm sticking with the one who told us the truth and what makes us, what gives us the moniker that we are citizens of heaven is our ability to stand firm. I move on now. I move on when I tell you <laughs> that it's always been a mark of the Christian faith to be under pressure from without. That belief in Christ has always been accompanied by the gift of taking hits in Jesus' name. I want you to remember now where Paul is writing this from. Paul is not writing this text from a condo downtown. He's writing it from the confines of prison in Rome. I, I don't know who told you and me that Believing in Jesus was going to be a walk in the park. I don't even know who told me and you that believing in Jesus was going to be the faith of the state. But let me tell you now the way that we're moving in these yet to be United States. Being a believer in Jesus Christ is going to cost you some scrutiny. It's going to indict you. It is going to make you feel uncomfortable. And, and in one sense, thank God that, that we are now moving away from a popular brand of Christianity. That, that we are, we are divor divorcing ourselves from the popular picture of what it means to be a Christian. Let me tell you, if following Christ is merely popular, it's probably not Christ who you are following. You listen to some of the preaching some of the teaching that goes across the airwaves today, and you can sense a kind of ease by which we're trying to dress up following Jesus. Ain't nothing easy about this. 
Ain't nothing easy about telling people there's a hell to shun and a heaven to be gained. Ain't, ain't nothing easy about telling people that to follow Jesus is to live with some kind of standard. It's to walk in some kind of truth. It's to not go some places and do some things. It, re it requires, watch this, our witness. I'm moving on to the good part. Thank y'all for laboring with me. But this text also urges upon us that in a real sense, to be part of the real church is to contribute toward the inward harmony and unity of the church. Listen now to the text. It says, therefore, in verse 1 of chapter 2, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind. Did y'all read that in your Bible? You see that if there is any, if there is any, if there is any, that in the original language can be better translated. Or let me say it like this. You, you know how you say to your, your friends, if I loved you and I do, then I would say this or do that. You, you, you ever say something like that? If, if I felt this way about you and I do, then this comes. This is what Paul is arguing. He's saying, if there is any affection, and there is, if there is any encouragement, and there is, if there is any alleviation or consolation, and there is, make my joy complete. Here now, all the hell that the church faces from people on the outside is not supposed to exist on the inside. That, that the drama that we get in the world, we get respite from in the church. Can I tell y'all that's part of the reason? Why I look forward to coming to church on Sunday morning? That's part of the reason I can't wait till we all get back in here and we all raise our voices and we all sing again aloud. I can't wait to hear the roar because I've been through some stuff. The last 15 months that hadn't allowed me to be in the fellowship, but, but some weeks, maybe you feel like I feel. You had a rough week, but you said, if I could just get to church... And when you got to church and the music got to going and you got to singing, tears started to stream down your face because there's real comfort and encouragement here. Help me, Holy Ghost. I said there's real compassion here. Oh, I know it. when the church is at its best, I've seen compassion. I've seen women struggling to take care of their kids. And people reach in their pocket without fanfare or noise and pay for those kids food for the month. I've seen that happen. I've seen people about to be put out on the street and with no fanfare, their mortgage has been paid. I, I've seen folk who were alone and elderly joined at their dinner table by some young couple because that's how the church functions. Paul says, if there is any, and there is, this is how you maintain it, make my joy complete by being of the same mind. Now, now, now all of this cry for unity being united in spirit, intent on one purpose. This cry for unity seems to result from some plague of partisanship. Paul has on one hand joy for their devotion and on the other hand sadness at their division. And so now I need to tell you I don't know the reason why what exactly was going on in the church at Philippi I don't know if they were suffering from some of the stuff the Corinthians suffered from. I don't know if it was greed or, or illegitimate relationships or getting drunk at communion. I, I don't know what it is. But after pastoring, as long as I've been pastoring, I can tell you I ain't got to know. Because where there are people, there will be problems. You ain't got to say amen. I, pre I came to preach to my own self, Rachel. I, I, I'm saying amen for my doggone self. Whenever you get two or three people in the same space to try to get on the same mission, it's going to be two or three different opinions about how you're supposed to get to where you're supposed to go. And, and, and then people believe, Reverend Ray, that the one chocolate person who stands up in front of them is supposed to quell all of the divisions and unite all of the many thoughts into one moving army and they think somehow majestically and magically things are going to be all right. I know what Paul is talking about. 
Paul is saying the last thing y'all need to be doing is fighting against one another. Here is how the church works. The church works when you and I prefer one another above how we prefer our own selves. Oh, y'all ain't in here listening to me yet. I said the church works when you want what somebody else wants more than what you want. The, the, the church works when we all have in one mind. We came to reach the lost and to release the burden of the poor. We came to point people to the person and work of Jesus Christ. We came to see people get baptized. We came to see people leave their life of sin and drama and come to the peaceful shore. But in many churches, rather than winning people, fighting to win people to see them baptized, we fight over what room they're going to get dressed in before they get baptized. Thank you, Deacon. I, I, I don't know if y'all, maybe y'all ain't been to church like I've been to church, where the business meetings attract more people than the prayer meetings where, where people fight over money over a dime and a dollar that ain't going to evangelism or discipleship but is going to their, their pet interest and here is the greatest crime in the local church pettiness it's, it's people being so small that we do not think big now with all of the problems at work in Chicagoland I ain't got time to fight you unless we fighting over how we gonna get these boys to stop killing each other across the street. I ain't got time to argue with you unless we arguing about what businesses we gonna buy. How we gonna empower our people to come to own their own self. I ain't got time to fight unless we talking about fighting for our kids to learn truth and to love God with their whole hearts. That's being intent on one purpose. United in spirit. I ain't got time to fight until we're trying to fight to help fathers get back with their kids and mothers off of their addictions. Paul says, fill up my joy. That's, that's when we make God happy. We, we make God happy, not when we got the big budgets to build the big buildings. We make God happy, not when we write new music and sing wonderful songs. But we make God happy when we are in oneness as a church. And before we get back in, I want to say publicly, God help me. Now I'm in trouble. I'm going off my script. I feel like Joe Biden. Turn the teleprompter off. Turn it off. I'm grateful that as painful as the last 15 months have been, that I ain't had to argue with nobody over nothing we needed to do at this here church. I ain't had to argue in a long time, but I'm going somewhere with this. I've had time to think about what really matters as a church. And I want to issue this because I'm eager to see all of you come back. But, but, but I want to tell you what you're coming back to. You, you're coming back to a church that ain't going to spend its time on trivial matters. You, you coming back to a church that's keeping the main thing the main thing. So call your friends, text your auntie, get your uncle on the phone, tell them the stuff they used to know might not be no more at this church. Because if it doesn't help us to make disciples, if it doesn't help us to bring harmony and unity in the fellowship, if it, if it doesn't help us to proclaim our witness, if it doesn't help us to get the name of Jesus out, we're not worried about that no more because folk are dying in the street and time is short. This is it. We've come to see that we might not actually know if this is our last Sunday in church. Do y'all hear me in here? I'm saying be intent on one purpose, united in spirit. And what does that require? How do you get that? Because few, few churches have ever seen that. Thank you, Paul, for answering the questions. I, I'm already six minutes over. God, give me grace to get this out. This is, the, is probably one of the loftiest, most majestic descriptions of the past, present, and future of the ministry of Jesus Christ. Paul says... That if you're going to be united in spirit and tent on one purpose, sharing the same thinking, your thinking has to go and Christ's thinking has to be adopted in you. 
he, he says, yeah, regard one another as more important than yourself. Do nothing for selfish ambition or empty conceit. But with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Having this mind, this attitude in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. This is all the proof we need that Christian living and Christian theology is antithetical to that of the world. There's no such thing as a worldly Christian. You cannot be a follower of Jesus Christ and just doing whatever the world does. No, this, this is it. And how did Christ think? Christ thought in a word, here it is, humbly. I'm in my seat. This is what we believe about Jesus. It, it, is, it, is, it is that he is our great savior. And I, I, I know, I know, maybe there's a better way to say it. That's the best I brought with me today. We, we face outward. We, we work for inward unity and harmony, but it's all grounded in our great Savior. Can I tell y'all how great he is? No, you ain't ready, so let me read it for my own self. He existed in the form of God and did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Help me now, Holy Ghost, preach to your people. He existed in the form of God. That means... That what we believe about Jesus is that Jesus is in the flesh fully what he is in the Godhead. When Jesus became a man, he did not lose his divinity. And I know, I know, it's hard to wrap our minds around the idea that God would become a man. But I got a question for you. How else is God going to save us? Who else is God going to use? The text says that he existed in the form of God. He enjoyed his Godness. Can you imagine sitting around the conference table in the secret recesses of the Trinity and the Father looking at the Son and the Son looking at the Spirit and the Spirit saying, I'm looking at myself. Can, can you imagine what it's like being there in the secret recesses of the Trinity? To hear the Father say, now, now man is in trouble. We created him to look like us, to bear our imprimatur, to, to hold our image. And he's gotten away, and now the plan has to go in action. And the only way to get him delivered is we can't have the blood of bulls and goats that won't fix them. We've sent the law. We, we've sent the ups and downs. We've let enemies get them. We've disciplined them. It's not happening. And in the secret recesses of the Trinity, the son says, well, it was determined when we made them that should they go astray, my blood would be shed. So here's all we need. Give me an earth suit. Put a body on me. And let me go down there and show them what we're like. I know, I know they've heard, but they've not seen. So I need to get down there. And, and, and you can hear the Spirit say, well, 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 hold on, son. When you get down there, they're not going to treat you right. They're not going to believe that you are who you say you are. And it's going to be a whole lot for the angels up here to look down on them and watch them spit on you. How, how, how do you think that, that we're going to be able to maintain our composure when they laugh at you and mock you and, and then put nails in you? But the son says, I got to go. I got to go because if I don't go, they will never get here. So the father said, all right, here's an earth suit. 2,000 years ago. He came down, was born to the womb of a virgin without the help of another man. And he lived on planet Earth sinlessly. 
and perfection. He, he watched this though. He humbled himself. God help me to preach to your people. You missed what I just said. Let me say it another way. We human beings have to be humbled. All right, let me talk about myself. There are times when you think you're so strong, I think I'm, I got enough resources to get through where life happens and you realize I don't have what it takes. Or, or maybe you've been hooping before and, and you thought you were the best kid on the court and you were taking care of business when another kid actually showed up with better skill than you. And watch this, humbled you. All right, let me go vanity real fast. You thought you were the baddest girl at the school until you got to the mall and you saw somebody else badder than you. And all the dudes who were looking at you started looking someplace else. And you realize real fast, you've been humbled. Are y'all with me so far? Who's going to humble God? Who, who's going to say I'm stronger? Come down. Who's, who's going to say I'm smarter? Sit down. Who's going to say I'm wiser? Follow my plan. See, read the Bible for what it's worth. He had to humble himself because couldn't nobody else humble him. What we believe about Jesus is that God so loved us that he decided to stoop for himself. He came down. And every time you think about the incarnation, something ought to bubble up on the inside of you that God loves you so much that he would leave all of that way up here to endure all of this way down here. He existed in the form of God. And yet he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Y'all pray for me. I'm having fun now. I'm not even reading my notes. Look, look, look. This is what the text says. The text says that he did not regard equality with God something to hold on to like a thief holds on to something they steal. You've seen people riot, haven't you? Act like you have not. You've seen it. Maybe you've been part of it. Where people get something out and it's loot and they hold on to it because they, they didn't own it. So now they got to hold it so nobody can take it from them. The Bible says that when Jesus came here, he wasn't on some high horse. He, he rarely announced even who he was because when you really are something, you ain't got to prove to everybody and their mama that you are what you know you are. So Jesus did not walk around holding on to his equality with God because he knew he was equal with God. When he opened the blinded eyes of Bartimaeus, he knew who he was. When he walked on the sea of Galilee, he knew who he was. When he called for that waiter to bring that water into the purification pots, he knew it was going to turn into wine because he knew who he was. But we who ain't got nothing are always trying to pretend like we somebody. Help me, Holy Ghost. He did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped. Oh, but taking on the form of a servant, he emptied himself. Let me talk theologically real quick. Does this mean that he was any less God because he emptied himself? Does this mean that he, he was not God because when he got here, he didn't have everything he had when he was up there? Oh, this gets good if you let it preach. No, this text says, that in order to feel what we feel and in order to experience what we experience, he had to take some of his privileges and put them to the side. He, he, he says, I, I can do. I'm able to know. But here's what I'm going to do. In order to become a man, I'm going to lay these privileges to the side. And, and in that way, that's the only way I can die. Y'all ain't with me in here. How do you put to death someone who's omnipotent? How, how do you humiliate and shame someone who has all power? 
But the text says he humbled himself to the point of death. You would think just walking on the dirt was humility enough. You, you would think letting them mock him was humility enough. But no, the humility of Jesus is extended to the point of death and death on a cross. He stooped low across. I know y'all hear me say it. I don't want you to ever take it for granted because I say it every week. But a cross, a cross, the marker of criminality, a cross, the shame of humanity. Not all of us deserve some dignity when we die. We deserve to be covered up, to have some loved one near us. It's part of the shame of COVID to have someone we know hold our hand as we take our last breaths on this side. All of us deserve to have somebody mop the death dew from our brow. We, we all deserve, I think, some dignity in death. But he hung there naked, bleeding, his entrails coming out. The Son of God, the ruler of the world, came way down here, and he let them put a crown of thorns upon his head. I, I, I said he let them put a spear in his side. He let them hurl insults after insult. He, he let them jeer and mock. And it was funny until the sky went dark. It was cool until the earth started to rock and shake. It, it, it was all right until the veil of the temple was torn in two. And then the soldier said, this ain't fun no more. Surely this must be the son of God who here today can hear all of that and feel nothing. That God did all of that because he saw you tipping out of the club with somebody else's wife. God did all of that because he saw you living in sin with no repentance. He, he knew you would be confused and lonely and lost. He knew that left up to your orientation family, you would never come to know the marvelous truth. But he loved you so much that 2,000 years ago, he saw you watching this sermon, sitting here in these pews, listening to the truth. And he said, oh, I got to go down. I've got to go down. Because if I don't go down, Tiff will never make it up here. If I don't go down, Charlie will never be able to preach the gospel. If, if I never hang on that tree, Kirstie will never come to find that there is redemption in life. If I don't come, they don't get here. And I wonder, can you shout on that? No, no, I'm not asking you to shout over a bunch of money. I'm not asking you to shout over a new house, but I'm asking you, can you shout when you think about all that God gave up to come get little old you? Ah, uh, but if that don't make you shout, this sex will get it. Here we go, Deacon Barry, I'm in my seat. Because whether you want to shout or not, the text says that since he came way down here, God gave him the name. Don't, don't, don't miss it. Don't miss it. He didn't give him a name. He didn't give him a popular name. He ain't give him a little moniker. No, the Bible says God gave him the name. You, you might meet a lot of people named Jesus. You, you might meet a lot of people named Jesus. You, you might meet a lot of people named Christian and all that. But, but there is one name that, that, that the text says is above heaven and it's above earth. And that at that name, every deed's going to bow. I know, I know, I'm about to mess with some of y'all. I don't mean to. I said every knee is going to bow. Did y'all hear me? I said every knee. Hitler is going to have to bow. Stalin is going to have to bow. Queen Elizabeth is going to have to bow. Donald J. Trump is going to have to bow. Mayor Lori Lightfoot, she going to have to bow too. Governor J.B., Quinn, Rod, all of them going to have to bow. Little June bug across the street gonna have to bow. Little baby at the at the school down the street, she gonna have to bow too. Mary Baker Eddy is gonna have to bow. It don't matter if you're dead now. The day is coming where when his name is called, gravity is gonna take over, and every knee that ain't never worked is gonna start to work. Then it's gonna bow, and every mouth 
is going to start to open. Help me, Holy Ghost. I, I, I said every mouth is going to open. I mean, it's one thing for the knee to bow. Some people, they're going to find themselves going down at gravity. But, but the Bible says their mouth is going to open and they're going to confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Did y'all hear me in here? I said they're going to say ain't no other name like that name. They're going to say ain't no other ruler like that ruler. The whole world will shout that Jesus is Lord. But can I tell y'all while I shout now? I shout because gravity ain't making me shout. I'm shouting because I got a choice and I know better. I'm shouting because I know he's Lord. Is there anybody here that know he's Lord? I said I'm shouting because I know already he's Lord. How do I know? Because Jesse Dates set me on her knee when I was a little boy. And she said, I need you to know something. I, I need you to know Jesus loves you, little Charlie. He loves everything there is about you. And if you trust him and do not doubt, if you put your whole faith in him, he'll do more for you than you could do for yourself. I, I know you might not have had the mama I had, but you got me right now. And I'm here to tell you, God loves you, my sister. God loves you, my brother. And he loves you so much that it doesn't matter what you've done or, or what somebody else has done to you. God is able to wipe all of those sins away if you trust him. If you believe in them, if you put your hope in them, and right now you can join me and the rest of the church in saying, he is Lord. He has risen from the dead, and he is Lord. Every knee's going to bow. Every tongue is going to confess that Jesus is Lord. Thank you for listening. Tune in next week for another uplifting and inspiring message by Dr. Charlie Dates, Senior Pastor of the Progressive Baptist Church in Chicago. For more information about our church, visit ProgressiveChicago.org. Progress is yours through the gospel of Jesus Christ.